Greetings, race community. Brent coming in live from Evertrue headquarters in Boston, Massachusetts for the very last time as we are in the process of shifting to a remote first model following our merger with Thankview. And so we are actually cleaning out our office this weekend. We've been in this space since 2013. A lot of good memories. Uh, and I figured I had to record at least one last episode and I couldn't imagine a better guest than Luis Diaz, who is the executive director of annual giving at Muhlenberg College, but we've really gotten connected through his role as the founder, CEO, executive chairman of the Donor Participation Project. Welcome, Louis. Thank you, Brent. I call myself the host, and honestly, I'm just hanging on for my dear life. So uh, wow. thanks, thanks a whole lot. We will talk a bit about Muhlenberg and a lot about the Donor Participation Project. But before we do that, we've got to get started with a bit more about your background, which while we've had the opportunity to get to know each other a bit over the last year, I do not uh, know much about your, your origin story and what led you on this path. And what I have been doing uh, for most of our guests is to ask them, hey, take me back to your junior year of high school, who was that person? What were they into? And usually what I say is, and what led you to insert your college name? The problem with that is you are the first guest where I, I cannot pronounce the name of your college, nor will I attempt to. I was able to gather it's in the Netherlands, but I was not even going to try to pronounce it. So where did you go to college, first of all? Oh my goodness. So everything is, is, is complex. It's complicated. I went to school in Spain for a bit. Then I studied um, in parallel. I studied music and I took some time in the Netherlands and in Belgium. So, yes, but I want to know the name because I would say something like Hansa Hoga School Groningen, something like that. Beautiful. Well, it, it's even easier. They changed their name to Nord Netherlands something, Conservatorium or something. Uh, yeah. which is the name of the, mu the exact music school. So um, that's, you know, it's a little well, bit. I, I see here, I, I think I'd rather go with Hansa Hoga School Groningen now that we've, you know, ripped off the Band-Aid. But uh, while you were there, you studied music and the viola specifically. So I can say for certain you are the most skilled viola player that we've had on the podcast thus far. Uh, but I do want to know a little bit about what led you there. Where were you uh -huh. up? You've had a very, um, uh, you know, global European um, education experience, which doesn't always lead you to uh, Allentown, Pennsylvania. And so just take us on that journey. And especially nonprofit fundraising, right? Which wasn't really a thing when I was growing up in Spain. So um, music was always a big part of my life. I would say the other two important uh, stools of legs of the stool. Uh, were business studies, which I started because I wanted to do music. And my parents were like, you have to study something serious. And I did. And I started hating it. And then I liked it a little bit more. And at the end, I got a PhD. And it was, uh, I just find the whole area fascinating. Um, and then technology, I started out, um, I remember my dad would take me to his office at a university, he's a professor. Um, and I would be teaching myself to code HTML on GeoCities. And that has been just a passion my whole life. So all of those kind of came together in fundraising. You know, you're going to say, well, that's um, a little bit strange, Lewis. 
But um, when I was at Lincoln Center, they had a great CEO at the time. Who but was Lewis, you cannot just jump from I was learning how to code in GeoCities to I got to Lincoln Center. Tell us about the journey. What, where, what, you know, tell us about college. Uh, what stood out in that experience for you? Um, and at what point along your um, path, um, ultimately, you know, you, you came over to the University of Tennessee. You were still experiencing or, or still focused on music at that time. Um, and so I gather it was at that moment that you started to learn what philanthropy was. But, but how did that sort of stumble uh, onto, your, uh, onto your path, if you will? Okay, so thank you for keeping me straight, Brent. Um, I would say that I had that parallel path of studying business and music. All of that um, led to some experience teaching in Spain um, back after I, I finished my studies and that was with my wife. And um, we decided to go to the States on a teaching assistantship for the University of Tennessee, Knoxville. Very uh, generous, incredibly grateful for, you know, it transformed our lives um, and landed there as music students. And as graduation was getting close, as folks may, may imagine, it's the music, the classical music industry is tough. And I had all this other parallel interest and background. So I started applying for internships, mostly um, in New York, because I had a place to stay over the summer. And um, I, you know, essentially, I did like a direct response campaign for myself. I, you know, I ignored uh, post job postings. I wrote every organization that I admired. And I offered myself for an internship and I got two really good ones, one with Lincoln Center and another one with AEA Consulting. And I would say, Brent, even I was at school and kind of experimenting, experiencing, sorry, philanthropy. But that was when it, I kind of really opened my eyes where, you know, I, I, it's, it's a thing that's profoundly human, but it can also be very technical. Um, if you're into databases, it can you can turn it into a database thing, you know. Um, it kind of just brought it all together. And of course, the mission. And I love it. The mission centeredness of it all. And Lincoln Center is at the intersection of your interest in the performing arts and philanthropy. So a natural on-ramp. I do have to ask, do you have a viola in your office? <laughs> Not in my office. If we were at home, I would have shown you a, a little violin that I, I joke around on Zoom calls with. But um, it's at home. Sorry, Brent. Well, here's what we're going to do. We're going to ask you to submit a video of you playing a little piece for our raise community, and we will make sure to edit that in as part of the podcast. Okay. Awesome. And we will accept uh, payments to my Google GoFundMe in support of Muhlenberg students for sure. Absolutely. We can work something out. Uh, and so tell me about the internship at Lincoln Center really getting uh, a window into the business of philanthropy. Did it click right away? Um, what was the, the experience where you started to realize, wow, this could be something that, that I build a career around? So very interestingly, I was, I was in production. So we were putting on the Mostly Mozart Festival, which uh, sounds very glamorous, but there was a, involved a lot of preparing coffee for the musicians and not touching the stands and the chairs on stage because that's what the union does the stage managers do so you're absolutely not allowed so it wasn't so glamorous but i did sit in a couple of sessions with a ceo reynold levy at the time and he was kind of a legendary you know nonprofit ceo but really focused on fundraising so like he would tell anybody i'll give you my full attention unless the phone rings and it's a board member 
So, you know, just like things like that. And um, he, he was really influential and um, kind of got me started and piqued my interest. And so that being said, you didn't join the Lincoln Center full time, did you? Or am I mistaken? That's correct. Um, I, so that summer, I also did uh, an internship with a boutique consulting firm called AEA Consulting brilliant principles. I, I mean, just out of this world. And because, you know, I like economics and all that, they, I mean, wow, the, the, the stuff they were working on was, was incredible. So I came back to UT Knoxville and I started networking my way. And I started as an admin assistant in the alumni office for the College of Arts and Sciences. Got it. And uh, one thing to start in that sort of entry level role, but you then, uh, you know, committed and, and have built a career path um, at a couple of different places, you spent some time at Maryville College, you spent some time at Johns Hopkins, and then um, with a backdrop of continuing music on the side, it, it sounds like. A little bit. I have been very fortunate to have incredible mentors and supervisors, Susie Booker at Maryville College, Tim Morton at Hopkins, uh, Jamie Kelly at the Baltimore Symphony, um, and now with uh, Rebecca Brown here at Muhlenberg. So. Uh, just learning a lot along the way. I, you know, I wish I played more. Um, life is kind of taking over and the family and all that. So. so you are one of the people, I mean, you've got a unique experience in that you started your career in the annual uh, fund at uh, the University of Tennessee, Knoxville, which is, uh, let's call it the, the largest uh, uh, university in, in Tennessee, if I'm not mistaken, right? They call it flagship. People that are not the flagship hate that term. Correct. Right. Uh, and so as I look at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville, they have well uh, over, you know, roughly, let's call it 200,000 alumni. So you start there and then you quickly move to Maryville College, which has fewer than 10,000 alumni. Not too many people have gone from the biggest community in the state to probably the smallest. What was that like? I, it was... Huh. So it kind of, it was, over time, uh, as I've reflected on it, it's a really good question, Brent. It has kind of illustrated for me what works and doesn't work at scale. Okay. So, and, and there's this really, uh, there's a social scientist somewhere and they write a little bit about how, well, if you're a tribe, then you can work with trust and, you know, you don't like, you know, it can be one-on-one -on -one relationships. But suddenly, if you have hundreds or thousands of people in a small town or a city, those same types of organizational tactics or, you know, strategies, they just stop working. So, um, you know, at different scales of things, even though you try to keep the same principles, it, you know, the same things don't work. And on the opposite side, if you're at a smaller scale, you probably shouldn't be trying to do the things that work for people that are operating at a huge scale. Um, so a lot more of those personal relationships, you know, the, the calls, you know, I, and I know you're a, a big part of, of your mission and you'll correct me if I'm wrong is how to combine those two effectively, right? Yeah, we, we would agree clearly, um, trying to personalize everything at scale is not realistic, but we do believe that you can take significant steps forward through a combination of strategy and technology such exactly. that if today you're creating a truly personalized experience for 2% of your community, which is what we typically see, 
you know, maybe with the right blend of strategy and technology and not adding a whole bunch of people to the payroll, you could perhaps grow that to even 5% or 10%. And that's where we see just tremendous opportunity at the upper part of the giving pyramid among unassigned folks who, um, with traditional strategies and tactics might take another decade before they have true one-to-one follow-up. And so it's, it's, you know, it's a balance, but we do see progress being possible. Yeah. And, you know, a, a really good example is, you know, if you think of the number of fundraisers per, you know, what thousand alums, yes. um, and you see that what that ratio is at a small place, when you go to a big place that, you know, you don't increase the number of fundraisers proportionally. So, I mean, I think that just says it all right. Um, yeah, which which I often wonder why not. Well, you know, why is that we could support a certain number of fundraisers per, uh, you know, let's call it alumni population uh, at a smaller institution. Why can't we scale it up? That's what a sales organization would do. But we're probably not going to answer that question on the podcast today. But I do think even asking questions like what is our ratio of fundraisers to our constituency um, I don't know that most folks even know that ratio or that that's, that's a KPI that we look at in this sector. Do we? Yeah. Well, I mean, I've, you know, I've done my nap, back of the napkin calculations because um, I thought it was interesting, but um, it makes, you know, to me, it makes a whole lot of sense. And I think that's a parallel conversation to why, you know, don't we keep investing in fundraising um, until that incremental dollar stops being there. Um Ah, you know, it's I, I don't, nonprofits are really complex. You know, again, I don't think we'll answer that today. But that complexity has not phased you, and you have continued to, uh, uh, you know, to to go deeper and deeper in the sector. I do just want to ask, given that the bulk of your career in fundraising has been in the education sector, I am very interested to know what it was like when you were at the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra, what are the similarities, whether it's an annual fund, major gifts, et cetera? What are the big differences? With our Thank You partnership, I've had the opportunity to learn a lot more about non-EDU nonprofits, but the bulk of our um, combined business is still in the education sector. So help educate me and our audience on what's what's the difference between Symphony Orchestra fundraising and uh, and everything else. By no means am I an expert in this. I have had the opportunity and the fortune to chat with lots of fundraisers in different types of organizations as part of the donor participation project. Um, some things I noticed. Uh, symphonies and, you know, honestly, smaller nonprofits are much more reliant on those current use dollars. Um, they may not have uh, other significant income stream, streams or the proportion is you know, very significant while at, a, at EDU institution tuition dollars normally make up the, you know, the majority of the budget and philanthropy having a really important and significant role, but uh, just, just the proportion is different. Um, and that was kind of refreshing, honestly, like, you know, it felt sudden, suddenly like uh, our work really mattered and was making a difference and was being looked at um, very closely by by the board and uh, the executive team. So um, I really like that. I found other aspects as uh, that I didn't like as much, like the focus on transactional types of fundraising, lots of like memberships that where it was really about what you get for what you give. Um, I thought that placed the emphasis and the long time sustainability of the donor base in jeopardy. Um, so if you know if you're and anybody who has had a chance to maybe 
look at the materials for uh, an arts organization, we'll see these really complicated charts with benefits at each level. They usually have like 15 levels and there's a thousand dots and I don't know, I, it was too much for me. Um, I would say, you know, those are two, two big differences. I still think in all, you know, EDU, non-EDU, um, the subscriber economy and monthly giving should be a greater focus. That would move us away from that kind of transactional mentality. Agree strongly. Sure. Tell me about what inspired you to take the role at Muhlenberg College. Well, this is an organization where the community is uh, really important, uh, both to the leadership. So uh, our president will, has actually said several times in speeches, you know, community is our superpower. And it's something that you feel. Um, that was important to me. Well, you know, I would say in one part, because on the fundraising side, I, I've been kind of obsessed with that community piece for the, the past years, um, but also at a, at a personal level, it was the type of place I wanted to be. And there was leadership that was really willing to be innovative and, and support um, our development in that way. So, um, you know, I, I, I got to meet the team here and it was like love at first sight. Plus uh, the best food or one of the best uh, places for college food in, um, I don't know, Pennsylvania, Eastern Coast. It's, it's really quite good. Love to hear uh, that. And so as you think about the challenges and opportunities at Muhlenberg, what are the big, um, you know, what are the key bullet points that you would cite just for our audience so that they have a good understanding of your, your day job and, and what your experience is and then ultimately we'll we'll dive into how that led to the creation of the donor participation project. I think we're seeing exactly the same challenges and opportunities that the sector as a whole is is seeing. So a lot of what we talk about internally are really uh, wider trends. So when I think of the decline in donor participation, um, uh, that's a trend that that's affecting you know most schools. Uh, when I think of the decline in trust and uh, the change in the quality of that relationship between alumni and their alma mater, um, you see that everywhere, you know, and, and I've studied this a whole lot because I, I felt like it was an important trend um, where just, well, alumni don't rely on the annual magazine or on their magazine or on their class notes to be in touch with each other. So it, it's like, in a way that the, the school has lost a bit of that informational power, you know? Um, and, and that just kind of affects the quality of everything. People don't need to come to you to, to network. They're networking on their own. You have really to think about what your value add is um, to those relationships. And then that has kind of a trickle down effect. That means that the, your, your values are not so much top of mind. If they're networking among themselves, well, you know, maybe they're not talking every time about how much um, scholarships change lives, you know, obviously. Um, so, uh, you know, I, and that's a wider trend, you know, social media, the decline in trust uh, for nonprofits. Last year in the Edelman Trust Barometer was the first time in history where people trusted businesses more than nonprofits. Um, I, I think that's pretty significant. And it's been happening for the last 20 years, of course, people, and we also see that less and less people are giving to nonprofits. It's like, and million households lost in the last decade. You know, I'm sure you know the stats better than I do. Uh, we love the fact that you're able to cite them for our audience. And I find myself constantly learning from the content that you put out and 
you've been so thoughtful um, in, in building this community, which my understanding is the donor participation project started in a very grassroots way roughly 18 months ago. It's now January of 2022 as we're uh, recording this. And so tell me, Lewis, about what it was during the, uh, I guess, the early days of the pandemic where you're sitting around, you know, maybe more time to think or uh, what sparked the idea of, hey, I should, I should test the waters on LinkedIn, I believe, or, or perhaps you start with small group discussions first. But, um, you know, what was the catalyst to, to try something? Uh, where are you today? And then let's talk about some of the lessons learned along the way. Thank you so much, Brent, for giving me the opportunity to share this. Yes, in the middle of the pandemic, I was, uh, well, personally reading a lot about community. CMX in the tech world is a is a big trend. People are talking about community as a very important competitive mode. So not only as this kind of feel good, oh, let's you know all be together, but as a true business asset um, that can help organizations. Uh, I was also seeing that the advice out there regarding fundraising, you know, didn't address uh, broad-based giving. Basically, you know, a lot of it was, and I still see these things on um, social media and elsewhere, like, uh, you know, it's a lost cause. Uh, schools shouldn't focus on participation uh, because look at the trend, you know. Um, and just the, the, the advice was didn't really go beyond, yes, you have to personalize your letters, like never do dear friend. And I'm like, oh my goodness, at this day and age, there's a lot more to it than that, right? And Brent is smiling. So um, we started putting a group. I thought, well, I'll recruit a speaker and we'll tell them that we have a group of uh, fundraisers, which we did thanks to you know LinkedIn and that community that's being created there. And we started getting on calls every month and they were like, it was like fire, it was like magic. I've, um, I spoke with a colleague, which some of your listeners may know, James Barnard. He, he told me it felt like a cult at the beginning um, I, because I told people there's gonna be required reading, like this isn't gonna be easy, you know, it's not infotainment. Um, and so we started getting there and really talking through things and people were sharing very intimate kind of real perspectives of their jobs. Our first speaker, was a researcher from Harvard Divinity School. And she told, she talked to us about, she was, she had done a study of why not millennials were flocking to some organizations and some not. And these organizations didn't have to be religious. They could be like a gym or a kind of grief uh, therapy dinner uh, type organization. And she tried to discover the whys and she talked about community again. You know, she would say people come for the, for the feature, for the benefit, they come for the workout, but they stay for the community. That's the reason. And that's how they grow by keeping the people that come in. So we started and it's been a wild, wild ride from there. And so if I were to ask you today, what is the donor participation project? How would you answer that question? It's a community of fundraisers who gather monthly to discuss how to increase donor participation at their organizations. It's as simple as that. Um, we have a list serve. We talk, uh, you know, separately and uh, people network like crazy, you know, and partly because we're sharing all these good ideas. So people are, oh my goodness, that person really, you know, knows about this. And then they network separately. But at its essence, uh, we're just a good a group of practicing fundraisers who gets together. every month. And so if our listeners want to join, uh, one, does this mean that you need to be in the annual fund or what's the, the breadth of... Uh, roles, for example, that might be participating? Uh, and then um, is there a fee? I mean, how does somebody join? 
sign up is free. We have everything from VPs to coordinators. Um, the theory is that this is a problem that has not been solved in the industry. And the ideas that are going to help us uh, get there, it's not going to be just one magical thing. Um, but the ideas that are going to, you know, these ideas are going to come from uh, the, the, the margins, from somebody who wouldn't typically be sharing their opinion. So everybody's welcome. It's free. Uh, some events to ask for a contribution, which is optional. Um, and you can join by visiting joindpp.org. Love it. Everybody, you should do it. You should also follow Lewis on LinkedIn. I saw that he has now over 8,000 followers, which is just remarkable and uh, really a testament to the consistency with which you have engaged the community. I mean, it does take um, a lot of uh, testing to see what your voice is on LinkedIn. And, uh, you know, I am curious before DPP, were you a a regular poster on LinkedIn? That's so interesting. So in January of last year, I made a commitment to post every workday on LinkedIn. And I haven't told anybody yet about this. So, um, and frankly, LinkedIn has been the platform where I've found really interesting professional conversations. I've always been kind of a nerd. My wife doesn't let me chat with her because she says I'm so weird. Um, and, and LinkedIn has been kind of where we can talk about uh, how to do agile processes for direct mail or how to, what questions to ask direct, you know, major donors and have really brilliant people uh, contribute. So I would invite everybody that if you feel like um, you have something valuable to share, don't, you know, don't wait for permission or don't wait for a gatekeeper to say that that's okay to do. Uh, put it out there and people will reply and ask others for opinion. Um, yeah. I think that's a great point. And you do this really well. And I've tried to do this more. If you're not sure what to say, or even if you find yourself at your desk wondering something, hey, how does XYZ work? Or has anybody ever heard of a scholarship that combines mentorship? I mean, just asking questions really uh, is a great way to, to get started. Um, and, and, and so I would encourage anybody uh, to take a look at Lewis's post. If you've been nervous about posting on LinkedIn or you think uh, that you don't have anything to say, um, start with a question uh, or start with a comment on one of Lewis's posts or one of my posts or somebody else's yeah. posts. And yeah, you have to follow Brent and other folks at Evertrue Thankview. Um, it's pretty, you know, I love what you put out and I, you know, what I, I, I totally support that. Just start writing. Um, don't wait. You know, I, I think we, we, we question ourselves too much. And as long as it's respectful and you're adding value, uh, there's, there are going to be people there that can be helped by you. And as I said, the, this industry has lots of problems that we haven't solved yet. Um, and the solutions are probably not going to come from the people who are always sharing or right. always being featured, right? So we need you, basically. Well, it's fair to say that you have not solved the donor participation problem yet, but you have had a front row seat to a lot of ideas and ways that might inform a solution. And you've probably heard of some examples where there have been real flashes of greatness or significant increases year over year or over a three-year basis uh, during a time when the industry has declined, as you've said. So 
what have been some of the conversations that stand out to you or examples or participants in the project that um, have brought some of those ideas to the forefront that you think are uh, catching on within your community? Wow, that, that's a really good question, Brent. And I, I wrote kind of a summary of what our first year has been. And you're right, there have been, I, I, there have been a few, um, there are organizations that are not doing as poorly as everybody else. Muhlenberg was very fortunate to actually, you know, grow a little bit in number of donors in the second year of the pandemic. So, um, you know, I, I would talk about monthly giving. I think that's one of those things where the finances support it, the psychology supports it, and it feels like the right fundraising thing to do. You want a relationship with your donors at all levels. You don't just want to be uh, grasping for a gift every year. Um, and I just don't understand why more people are doing it. So at Muhlenberg, we actually redid our entire um, annual fund approach to accommodate monthly giving. So our website defaults to monthly, our uh, mail has a, our, our reply envelopes have a, a, an option for monthly that's quite prominent. Our callers are trained to ask for monthly first and it's grown. We, we went from something like, uh, I don't remember exactly, but 30 to over 500 monthly donors in a year. Um, so, you know, that's one thing. The second thing where people, I, I see people really making strides and having those, as you said, flash in the pan moments are with community. Um, and I, I would talk about two parts of community. One is um, the types of communities that work. And the, what, the way I explain this is they have to be participatory, purposeful, recurring, and identify leaders. And we can talk about that some other time. But the other part is how you communicate. And Brent, you were talking about content um, and, uh, and kind of sharing that that was important. And I think nonprofits need to communicate much more in a much more authentic way. And that gift officers really have most of all the tools they need to be able to do this without a whole lot more support. And I think of products like Thank You, of course, when I, you know, when I say this. So... Um, you know, between those two or three things, however you want to divide them, I, I've seen lots of good stuff. You named four points. You said participatory, recurring. Okay, yeah. So for community, the way I describe well-functioning communities that are like that competitive mode are participatory. So you have people that go to it need to have a say in things. So it doesn't count to say we have a webinar every week and then people just are supposed to sit and listen, right? So it has to be participatory. It has to be purposeful. So we get together at the bar um, with my friends from the nonprofit or my fellow alums, uh, that's not purposeful. Um, but if we do other activities such as committees, or we think about problems that, the, the, that we've been asked to work on, or simply we get together to have fun, but it's in support of some cause, that's purposeful. Recurring, and this is a thing that I feel like lots of places forget or there's turnover where it takes time. And, you know, you talked about being consistent. It just takes time and people need to start getting into the habit of joining this community. So it has to happen either every month, every two weeks um, with some frequency that people come to expect and identify leaders. So the people who are putting the community on, uh, whether it be Evertrue, whether it be the donor participation project, whether it be your nonprofit, you can't do it all. So you have to find ways to identify people that will help and give them the structure and the support that they need. And that includes gifts, of course. 
I love that. That is super helpful. And so, you know, your point being participatory, don't talk at your community, talk with them, you know, be a facilitator. Um, purposeful is what are we trying to do here? So in your case, we are trying to solve the donor participation project in, er, problem. And yes, we can network and build relationships and those are all gonna be byproducts, but we're here for a reason and it's a focused reason. And we're going to talk about it on a recurring basis consistently in your case, monthly. And then when you talk about identified leaders, you are the leader, but you are pulling in others who are uh, enthusiastic believers, supporters, you know, equally committed to the cause. And you are delegating them as leaders. You're creating committees. I mean, how have you done the identified leaders component of DPP? Oh my goodness, this is where there's just some brilliant minds. And then I'm going to start rattling names, Brent, and please Good. stop me. But Deb Best and Greg Wagland were our Facebook group moderators. Matt Manfra, who led um, uh, Think Tank on the Future of Nonprofit Conferences. Wink, wink. I've been posting about that recently. Um, then we have a small group discussion chairs. So when we gather together in smaller groups with more peers, like Heather Thompson, like Sean Davendorf, um, and it just goes Stephen Ginter in the small groups, uh, in the private schools group, uh, Steve Backer, Rebecca Baker. Um, so we have tons of people who have really stepped up and helped us make this happen because, you know, and, and you know, as, as the uh, leader and the manager of a large organization, uh, you can't do it alone. That's super uh, helpful. And when you think about that framework in the context of a higher ed community, um, which aspects of that would you say as a sector, the advancement community gets right? And where do you think there's the biggest opportunity when you think about participatory, purposeful, recurring and identified leaders? It seems like identified leaders is the one that everybody's done with boards and trustees and alumni association and committees and you name it. What about participatory, purposeful, and recurrent? Absolutely. I think there's one model that actually shows all of these, like before I even realized that this was a thing, but the reunion model it has all of these elements. And I know there are people for it and there are people against it and people who are saying, well, it should be more around affinities. Okay, we'll do it around affinities, but use these same, like don't throw away the baby with the, you know, the bathwater. Um, so that's a model where people, a committee gets together regularly as the reunion approaches. Usually it's participatory. And I find that the schools that are more participatory, you know, have more satisfied and, you know, do well with this. Uh, so you're actually asking for the committee members to help out, not just sit there and listen to you about, you know, how that, how the reunion is going to be. Um, and so it's, and it's purposeful. So it's around celebrating our class and usually um, celebrating our class by getting together and making a gift in support of students or research or, you know, whatever. So that's the purpose and everybody for the most part understands it. And it's typically, you know, high up there all the time. And it identifies leaders, as you said, the, the committee thing. Um, and, and I think it's interesting. You said that schools have, um, are doing this a lot, but what I find is that a lot of the, and I've done surveys, um, about this, even, even with super large data sets, um, a lot of the communities that happen in schools are outside of the advancement structure. So they're friends that get together every week. They're somebody who married um, his best friend at school. Um, 
you know, they're all types of really communities, but they they just, you know, don't exist within the umbrella, you know, the, the banking umbrella. Yeah. And we, uh, we've been watching closely all of the momentum around Web3 and mm-hmm. crypto and, and NFTs. And um, I'm by no means an expert, but I have, um, especially over the holidays, just tried to dive in a little bit to learn more and really think about it in the context of the community building. And it is remarkable when you see the way that, um, you know, NFT artists are building community, leveraging discord, bringing people together who are from all over the world with no natural shared connection. And you look at the way that they're able to get people participating and they're doing conversational, you know, Twitter spaces or the podium feature on uh, Discord, or they're meeting regularly, they're delegating um, and creating um, leadership roles within this Discord community. They're doing everything you just said, and they're leveraging technology. It's not about Discord or Slack, like those are tools. It's not about a Facebook group. It's about do, do we have the framework and the ingredients in place to create a real community? But then the amount of uh, money that is flowing into these communities, which are for, you know, art, you know, digital art, um, that there is no inherent connection to. Mm-hmm. Why isn't Brown University doing that? Where there is deep affinity. Why isn't Muhlenberg College doing that? And so it has been really amazing just to see that within a 48-hour period, 10,000 people can can come together uh, like they did in the LinksDAO community, all buy NFTs to fund the purchase of a golf course. And they're doing that as strangers on the internet. And so it does make me feel like there's lots of opportunity for friends within an alumni community to leverage some of the same trends. You want to see, hear something really weird, Brent? Okay, I was, and I'm, I'm taking silence as a, as a yes. <laughs> I was um, speaking with Gary Shang, really brilliant guy, Forbes 30 under 30. He's founded a philanthropic DAO, DAO, how, how you call them, okay? Yep. Um, Okay, and we're chatting and he starts to talk about community building tactics and that I'm telling him, that's what we do at universities that we've done for the last 50 years, like having uh, badges, you know, and they do that on Discord. So you click on somebody's profile and that's how you motivate people. You know, the fact that people buy an NFT almost, you know, so that they can show up off to their friends. And I asked them, and what is the environment where you show it off like we have an event and then somebody has a name tag and maybe have 50 different flags under the name tag and that's how they show it off and he says well mostly twitter they'll change their profile picture to be the the nft that they bought and if it's you know something that has like a philanthropic or a feel-good message you know that makes them look really good um and it was like we're rediscovering fundraising um in a totally different way i'm so glad you brought that up yeah, and I don't think that means everybody should go and pivot to launching DAOs or NFTs for their alumni community because most people don't even have default monthly recurring today. And so there is a risk that we'll uh, go and jump to the next thing because it's shiny without having some of the fundamentals in place. But I do think we can learn a lot. And if you're listening to this podcast and you have no idea what Discord is, 
and you've never thought about buying an, you know, an NFT, um, you know, don't go running down that rabbit hole, but don't ignore it. Uh, th there are some really basic tactics that are emerging uh, and, and again, leveraging technology, but it's about the community building framework applied to that technology. Exactly. It's the community building. I ran a small test, I think like last week, and I have to say it failed. Um, it was related to NFTs, right? So I created one and I actually um, had interest in buyers. They couldn't handle the, the purchasing process. So, and this was really sophisticated people. Um, so my lesson, I'm, I'm going to, you know, do a write up about this. My lesson is that we're not, you know, for the vast majority of donors, we're not there. Even if people have crypto, which is really interesting. This was people that I knew had crypto. They couldn't handle the process of buying one. Right. Now, now that being said, uh, we all could very quickly, and I'll just do this on the fly. I'm going to go to Muhlenberg college and I'm going to see, uh, at this point within the Muhlenberg community, uh, roughly 20,000 uh, people, there are five alumni who are connected enough to the NFT space that they have it in their profile. And uh, within the Muhlenberg community, there are... Uh, and you didn't say this, Brent, but are you a never true looking us up? There are nine alumni who have crypto in their profile. And, and so those are searches that anybody can do that um, you know, if you want to learn or explore, start with your own community. And you could, you could invite one of those people to do Crypto 101 for the Muhlenberg community. And then you've got a combination of you know, trust through the Muhlenberg brand, plus relevancy through somebody that can speak the same language and share you know, their experience. You could do the same thing with NFTs and actually be a source of education and participation around a new topic that is a little overwhelming to people. Wow, I'm so glad I, I, I joined this conversation with you, Brent. Um, I'm, I'm taking that, I'm stealing that one for you. Oh, do it and then let me know how it goes and we'll feature it on the blog and we can hopefully share uh, with others. So uh, you did give me a wink wink on the donor participation project event. And so tell me more than wink wink and what should our audiences be on the lookout for? Wow, thanks so much for this question, Brent. So we had a think tank um, that, as I mentioned, uh, Matt Manfra was leading and we did as a group, it, this started out with a session with Jim Langley and we started thinking about what was the, the potential future of nonprofit conferences. Of course, we were in the middle of COVID. Will things go back to normal? You know, who knows? But we kind of made a list of what we would like conferences to look like and it covers everything from speaker selection to venue to whether it's in person or virtual or both to you know the content which is related to the speaker selection um, to the role of sponsors and you know we left it at that and that was before the before the holidays and we thought wow we've done really good work we patted ourselves on the back and then I saw on LinkedIn that they were asking for uh, proposals for uh, a LinkedIn creator accelerator program. And I thought, well, let me just record a video. It was pretty easy to do. Just, you know, you just recorded yourself. And I said, well, our project for this would be to put on a conference for donor participation. Um, and they said, yes. I mean, I, I still can't believe it. This, it started just this week, it started the 10th of January. Um, and they, they've, you know, they've made this possible in a variety of ways. And my commitment is I'm going to be posting about the process of putting this on. So it's all in real time. It's all in participation with everybody where we have worked a lot, but we're also figuring it out with everybody's help. 
um, and we're planning to announce, you know, something next week or maybe the week after, and I invite everybody to speak. Well, I suspect that by the time we publish this, you will have made that announcement. And so we will make sure to include uh, whatever materials are available as we distribute this to our community. Wow, um, thank you. I, I guess I would ask, while we're maybe on this topic, you must get pitched by vendors all the time, or you have people reaching out, or your colleagues have vendors reaching out either directly through Muhlenberg or by way of the donor participation project. What advice would you have to vendors uh, about how we all can do a better job um, building building community? Well, I have, I'll give the counterintuitive advice first, and it is that things need to be sold the same way that gifts need to be asked for. So it's not just, you know, and I know like everybody's bashing, you know, the role of the person that politely and persistently keeps in touch with you. Um, and I, you know, I, I don't agree with, I, I do, like, I see the same thing with gifts and, um, you know, and other experiments that I've run, people just need to be reminded and asked, you know, um, and that's a good thing maybe or not, but it's human nature. Um, the next, the next part of it is truly being, uh, trying to be at least, um, an active participant in the communities, you don't have to think of that you need to create anything on your own, even just being an active participant on LinkedIn with content that is truly valuable. So people's, if I may use this word, uh, Brent, people's BS detectors are very high, you know, so you know, really put out stuff that's valuable. Um, and, you know, and I know you guys put out studies and even, you know, and when I say valuable, it could be emotionally valuable or entertainment wise valuable, right? Um, but, um, you know, that there's a high bar there. But once you do that, those conversations are so natural and easy and it just flows so well from there. And, you know, hopefully it, it results in people coming to you rather than, you know, the opposite. Right. Well, you know, the, all the content marketing here. Right. right. No, well said. Um, oh, all right. Well, we're, we're coming up on time here. Is there anything else on your mind that we haven't talked about that we should talk about or that you'd like to? Ask me for that matter. I mean, what's on your mind, Lewis? Well, I'm really interested um, in, you know, we've all heard about your merger. So what that's going to look like, and maybe we don't, you know, if, if that's not a topic you want to cover, like where do you see that, that future of kind of automation and sales enablement that I've heard you writing a lot about? Um, and it's an area where I, you know, honestly know, from what I've read, but I'm, I'm not an expert. So, you know, if you have like 10 to 15 minutes um, to sure. talk about that, it would be interesting. Well, yes, it's something we feel really passionate about. And I think we always frame it through the lens of what problem are we trying to solve the same way that you have for donor participation pro uh, project. And as I've hinted at earlier, um, we now have over 40 million records across hundreds of institutions on our platform. Uh, and those are donor records, alumni records. And within that data set, we can see um, are they assigned to a gift officer or not? Are their contact reports being logged or not? What is the retention rate of that community? And we're just starting to really dive into a next level of analytics. But even at a bare bones um, level, it is clear that as much as we call this a relationship business, relationship building is really reserved for roughly the top one to 2% of the giving pyramid. When you look at the assignment uh, across a giving pyramid, about 2% 
of constituents in the education sector have a relationship manager, major gift officer, leadership gift officer assigned to them. And within that 2%, only half receive a single touch point over the course of a year. Oh my goodness. So really, we've got about 1% of the community that gets even a single personalized attempt. And then within that audience, how many of them get that consistent, polite, persistent approach that we know uh, pays dividends in the nonprofit and for-profit world. And so part of, uh, we believe our role is to one, just shine a light on that problem. Cause I don't think that very many people uh, within the space have looked at uh, our coverage ratio within our community. Um, but everybody has said, this is a relationship business. And so I think we need to shine a light on the fact that it is a relationship business, but right now only for about 1% of our community. And in a world where the for-profit sales, marketing, and customer success uh, industry uh, and sectors and roles have been transformed by smart personalization, smart automation that does not fake human-to-human -human interaction, but actually reduces the friction so that more human-to-human -human engagement can happen. And that was something we believed strongly in before the pandemic. And then we were shifted into the pandemic where within a three-month period, Zoom went from 10 million users to 300 million users and grandparents everywhere who in the past would have been cited as, uh, well, they're not going to do technology, were FaceTiming their grandkids and getting on Zoom calls for reunions and there was a generational shift in technology that we have never seen before that we believe further opens the door for relationships to be formed uh, in a far more efficient way, which is frankly, I've never met you in person. I hope that I get to someday. Think about all the people that you've gotten to know and brought together in the donor participation project who you've never met in person and you hope that you get to someday and you are friends, you are trusted business partners, you have uh, a real relationship and that is allowing you as one individual with some good leadership and delegation to build a community efficiently in a low cost manner, radically lower cost than if you were a major gift officer on behalf of the donor participation project flying out to meet each of these members one by one. And so that is really what we're trying to do with the merger of Evertrue and ThankFew is start with the data, identify the best engaged supporters who warrant more attention, and then think about ways we can craft donor experiences, leveraging ThankFew, leveraging Zoom, leveraging LinkedIn, so that we can do the same kind of thing that you're doing with the donor participation project, but package that up and enable it for our customer community where there's so much latent potential, um, but it is not gonna get done by adding one more gift officer with 100 people in their portfolio. Sorry for my long-winded answer. My goodness, Brett, I'm getting goosebumps. We're on Zoom um, and I'm showing him. It, literally, this is, um, it's, it feels like we're just scratching the, the surface, right? Yeah, yeah, and, and, and that's where, um, you know, everything that you said, I mean, even just, just spitballing off of some of the notes that I've made, you know, participatory, purposeful, recurring, identified leaders, you can apply that to the whole giving pyramid. You can apply that to recent graduates. Well, and the thing is we do, Brent, right? we already apply that to our board. That's exactly the experience our board is getting. Why don't we do it 
in a, in a cost-effective way on a Discord in on Zoom with with hundreds, thousands more. And now that we are in an environment where we are, are all truly a Zoom link away and will be forever, that we are a Discord link away and will be forever. How do we start harnessing those those trends? How do we build that expertise on our staff, um, and then really? Um, you know, scale our outreach. Uh, you know, there are there are discords that I'm a part of now. I'll never meet the founders of those discord, but I feel like I know them. And so do 10,000 other people. You know, what is the role of a college president in a discord? Right now it's none. And I'm not saying run and go do that. But my point is there should be far more accessibility through technology so that maybe the top 1% of the giving pyramid is still going to be the audience that gets that personal visit from the president or the gift officer, but what is the experience we can weave together for the next 10,000 that is a lot better than getting a call from a student caller at night or getting, you know, dear friend mail in your mailbox. My goodness, Brent, I'm with you. Let's, let's make this happen. I hope I'm you, I hope you, I hope you transform this industry. On that note, it goes without saying, but if there are things we can do further to support the donor participation project, that's something that we should we should uh, catch up on. And uh, and certainly as it relates to your event, um, we believe deeply in what you are doing. And we share your conviction that this is solvable. It, it's really more solvable than ever before. And we cannot accept that donor count is just going to decline. If you keep doing the same things that have been not successful and hope that it will just stop the bleeding, that will not succeed. Um, but it really, I think coming out of the pandemic will give us a mandate um, to just reinvent what we're doing. Absolutely. I said in some of the, our first sessions with the group, we need to have more of an engineering mentality. Look, you know, it's a, it's a contraption and it's not working as well as we want it. You know, don't throw it away. Don't keep running it, you know, until it actually breaks, but, you know, maybe change a couple of cogs and think, you know, think it through again. Well, it is great to be on this journey, uh, our entrepreneurial journey, and I would argue your entrepreneurial journey as host, founder, CEO, and executive chairman of the Donor Participation Project. And so with that, Lewis, I've already mentioned it, but if people want to get in touch, what's the best way to do that? Simply type joindpp.org in your browser. Love it. And I'm going to go do that right now. With that, Brent signing off the last time from 330 Congress Street here in Boston with our friend Luis Diaz, Executive Director of the Annual Fund at Muhlenberg College and host of the Donor Participation Project. Thanks, Luis. And don't Thanks. forget that Viola riff for us, okay? It's coming. It's coming. All right. Take care, everybody. See ya. Bye.